The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 21. Yo, welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy's free, but the food's on you. Hello folks, Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back, thanks for being here, happy to have you here. Some preliminaries before we get into the show. Click over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and follow me on the various social media icons. Also, support the show by becoming a patron with my Patreon. I am interested in upgrading the show with some equipment, particularly a new mic, and anything you can do to help get there would be much appreciated. Please do share the show with your friends with your favorite social media platforms. And when you do listen on your favorite podcatcher, take a moment to rate and give a positive review of the show. Those ratings and reviews help move the show up and get more people listening. And the more people who listen are the more people who get cooking. The field of candidates running for president is already getting crowded, and that's just the Democrats. How can you sort out the silly from the serious? Subscribe to Liberty Classroom through my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback, and learn economics and politics and history on your commute to work. Bite back against the wrong or missing information from your government school education with Liberty Classroom, culinarylibertarian.com slash bite back. Today, my guest is Lawrence W. Reed, president of FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. I'll give Lawrence a moment to tell us about his career. Lawrence travels the world in his current job giving speeches about economics. However, it is about his travels and visits to other countries that I wish to talk to him today. Welcome, Lawrence. Thank you so much for being on. Hey, it's my pleasure, Dan. Before we get into talking about food, as it happens, you have quite a name for yourself in your own field. So for those of us who don't know who you are, give us a little bit of background about who Lawrence Reed is. Okay. I'm an economist and historian. I am the president uh, at the present time of the Foundation for Economic Education and have been uh, for 10 and a half years. I say at the present time because we're in the process of searching for a successor, which we hope to announce uh, sometime in the next few months. Uh, Before joining FEE in 2008, I had a long history with the organization uh, as its uh, board chairman for three years. Uh, nine years as a member of the board and as a speaker and writer uh, going back as early as 1977. And before becoming president of FEE in 2008, I was also for 21 years the president of the uh, Mackinac Center for Public Policy in Michigan, where uh, prior to that I taught economics uh, for seven years at Northwood University. All right. Well, we're not going to use almost any of that information today because we're going to talk about something that you probably don't get asked very much about, uh, which is your travels, which probably is of interest to a lot of people, but really particularly the food on those travels. And so you've told me 
the extent of your travels, but just let everybody know where you've been. Okay. I've been to 83 countries to date. The first time I went uh, overseas, except for a fishing trip to Canada, was 1985. And so what is that, Thirty, almost 35 years? 83 countries, many of them many times, like seven times to Russia, five of those when it was uh, part of the old Soviet Union, uh, many times to China and uh, to almost every country in Latin America, in Western Europe. Uh, and Eastern Europe as well. Uh, I, I guess six continents. The only one I haven't been to is uh, Antarctica. And I really enjoy foreign travel. I have a lot of friends in many countries. It's always great to see them. And uh, one of the things I most like to do when I go to a foreign country is to uh, immerse myself in the local culture as much as possible. I, I don't run to the first McDonald's I see. I want to eat and I, uh, the local food. I want to meet the local people and get off the uh, tourist beaten path as much as I can. Well, that's, I wouldn't run to McDonald's anywhere. So I appreciate that. <laughs> so you and I are Facebook friends and I have seen some of your photographs from your, um, from your travels. And, and I remember seeing some of them from Russia and I, I, I was really, I was impressed by the, the, quality of how the food appeared. It just really looked like very, very fine dining. And so one of my thoughts, and I will preface the thought with a profound ignorance of world affairs. I'm not a world traveler. I have been to Canada, but you know, I too am from Michigan. So going to Canada is just a weekend excursion. So coming from this uninformed place that communist countries are inherently just dirt poor, those restaurants that serve this fine cuisine, my first thought is, who is the food for? So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and I probably am. Are are the people in this kind of country just dirt poor? Or do these restaurants that make nice looking food have a domestic market? Well, Russia has come a long way by many measures since the old uh, Soviet days. And the Photos that you may have uh, recently seen, or even two years ago when I was at this uh, uh, same restaurant in, in Moscow, uh, they were uh, of a very fine dining uh, food and place. Uh, but, you know, that didn't exist except for the party apparatchiks and foreign dignitaries uh, 30 years ago. The restaurant that uh, you may have seen the more recent pictures from, because I was there in November of uh, last year and uh, March of 2016 was from the White Rabbit. And oh my gosh, I, that's one, one of my favorite restaurants now in all the world. It's rated by, I think the Michelin people as the 17th best restaurant on the planet. I've been there twice now and they specialize in uh, beef tongue, which I would or normally never order or uh, you know, I have never ordered before, but it is absolutely exquisite. And if anybody's listening and think, uh, thinks that it must be incredibly expensive, it's not. In fact, the first time I was there in March of 2016, three of us had uh, uh, our drinks, we had appetizers, we had our entrees, we had desserts, we had the whole works. Uh, three of us in this beautiful restaurant uh, on the 16th floor, I think it is, of a building in Moscow, built like a greenhouse at the top so you can see in all directions. The total bill only came to $220 for three of us. So it's it's very inexpensive, but just fantastic. 
I think, though, that the diet of the ordinary Russian uh, has made dramatic uh, progress and improvements since uh, the communists uh, disappeared in 1991. So I think everything is generally better in Russia, although I certainly, as a libertarian, uh, decry a lot of the authoritarian impulses of the current government. But the food is getting better all the time. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I mean, not to tread into your territory, but I think that the idea that conflict is the heart of economics and the conflict being you know, dealing with the infinite wants and the finite resources, uh, I think there's also a kind of an economy in the food culture. And it can probably, we could take culture down to as small as a city block. Uh, I'm, I, I don't, again, I don't have firsthand knowledge, but having spent a lot of time watching TV shows, knowing that in the little Jewish section in Rome, you can get things there that across the street, you're not going to get because they don't do Cacciofella Judea, for example, across the street. So there's, there is, I guess, a real micro food culture, but then we can get into the bigger stuff. One of the things I'm sort of wondering about and now that the the financial economics of Russia are improving for most of the people, there is an ability to have a, a wider exposure to different foods. But when there wasn't that, and, and this applies to anybody who's experiencing limited financial resources, you have a core food culture. So I know that the Russians, they had a, a, like a sideboard of hors d'oeuvres called zakuski. Uh, the Polish have the gołąbkis, uh, the Hungarian goulash. You get Viennese desserts, which is, I guess, maybe an indulgence. But how do you find, and this is maybe a hard question to, to, to answer, but how do you find through the thick and thin of times they maintain this food culture? I think, uh, and this is probably true everywhere, that people pass uh, down from one generation to the next. Uh, a lot of aspects of their uh, family food culture. Uh, and so uh, family is probably the single most important source of whatever uh, any nation's food culture may be. And, uh, you know, that's very hard for uh, even the state uh, to, uh, to to regulate. Families will do their best uh, for themselves, uh, no matter what the circumstances. And only if, uh, you know, uh, you live in a situation where the government is engineering mass famines, as the Russian government did, Soviet government, back in the Ukraine in the 1930s. Uh, only in extraordinary circumstances like that can the state have the effect of nullifying uh, the food culture that gets its stamp uh, right at the start in, uh, in, in families. I remember, though, uh, I interviewed the uh, manager of the first McDonald's restaurant that opened in Moscow in the very late 80s, and uh, it had only been open for a couple months at that point. And one of the things I learned, and I saw it, uh, was that uh, the introduction of private enterprise in uh, the restaurant business, uh, whether it be from foreign countries like McDonald's or even domestic uh, restaurants, had a salutary effect on the way people related to each other. And every libertarian, I think, should be excited about this. It's one of the things that private restaurants do. What I'm talking about is uh, this manager of the McDonald's told me that uh, the first customers who came, uh, and they lined up for blocks to get uh, McDonald's food, they were shocked 
uh, at the training that the McDonald's employees had. Uh, you, you walked in, they let 50 people in at a time, and they had something like uh, 28 registers, as I remember. And they were immediately greeted by clerks who said things like, can I help you? What can I do for you? Would you like ketchup with that? You know, or uh, would you like fries with that? And, and the reason they found that shocking, so many customers, is that they were accustomed to state restaurants uh, with surly waiters who basically treated them like you get treated at the DMV or the post office quite often, where, you know, we don't really care about you. You're, you're a customer, but that just means you're a burden to us. If you weren't here, we'd get paid anyway. Larry, let's take a minute out for a word from one of my affiliates. Try the World is the first gourmet tour around the world with no planes or passports necessary. Visit culinarylibertarian.com slash worldfood to subscribe. Subscribers receive a gourmet box of ingredients from various countries such as France or Brazil every month. Discover a dozen of the best gourmet and cultural finds in each box, accompanied by a beautifully illustrated culture guide explaining how to enjoy the food. Try the World also offers a snack box subscription with five snacks from five different countries. Check out the gift boxes and shop to purchase items also. Visit culinarylibertarian.com slash worldfood. That's culinarylibertarian.com slash worldfood to subscribe. Now, let's get back into the show. So, uh... I think the introduction of private restaurants in Russia has actually had a wonderful effect of, of soothing tensions, bringing people together, encouraging uh, politeness. Uh, I mean, that's, one, that's what capitalism often does uh, for people. You have to serve your customer uh, or you uh, disappear. Yeah, or, or you won't have a customer. Yeah. I think that that surly waiter is kind of the... And, and movies certainly contribute to this, but I think that's sort of the stereotype idea we get of of what a communist system would be. And 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 I guess if that's what they're doing to the customers, they're not helping their case. <laughs> yeah, and to contrast that now with any restaurant in Russia, I don't know that there are any. Uh, certainly, if there are, there aren't many state-owned restaurants these days. Uh, I think they're overwhelmingly private and wherever you go you find people uh, uh, providing uh, friendly service and that really we take that for granted in places like the United States but it was a new thing uh, for generations of Russians uh, when the communists uh, disappeared in the early 90s well that's that's hopeful and that's that's exciting stuff so travel brings about and, and maybe even for a seasoned traveler there's still possibly the excitement of of the mystery of the place. And I think, and certainly in my case, there's, and I've demonstrated, there's a misunderstanding of a people, no matter where you go and no matter who those people are. Um, one of the things I'm curious, have you found that uh, in, in terms, maybe even in restaurants, but more at people's homes or just in general, does food serve as, as this vehicle to bring people together regardless of politics or class or economics? I think so. Uh, I've seen that happen in many countries. Food is uh, 
universal. We all like it. We all eat it. And uh, when we sit around a table eating food, it's kind of hard to uh, to hate the person right across from you. Uh, I mean, it's a pleasant experience. So I think by and large food is uh, uh, something that helps to bring people together. Uh, I, you know, and I would caution too, even though we talked about a very fancy fine dining restaurant in Moscow that I particularly like, uh, I wouldn't encourage travelers to uh, only go to such places. Eat with ordinary people as much as you can at the restaurants where ordinary people eat. When I go to Poland, which is one of my favorite uh, countries in all the world, I love going to out-of-the-way, uh, non-touristy, locally-owned uh, restaurants. And one of the things I typically order, believe it or not, Poles themselves kind of look down upon and say, oh, why would you want that peasant food? It's called bigos, and it's a kind of savory sauerkraut, uh, sauerkraut with uh, sausage. And, uh, oh, my gosh, that's one of the reasons I like going to Poland. You can't get it here. But uh, so, yeah, I've had many great conversations uh, with people, not all of the same political views around uh, a dinner table in one country after another. Well, that, I guess, gives Americans hope for Thanksgiving time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that seems to be the opposite experience. You know, there's all sorts of funny memes being posted around Thanksgiving time about libertarians and, you know, throwing in the explosions at the dinner table. And <laughs> Yeah, or I've seen a few memes uh, that, bring up the old, uh, an image from an old Three Stooges episode where, you know, they're throwing pies at each other. But that's uh, that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> yeah. No, although I think the sentiment does have some validity to it. <laughs> I would enjoy a good pie fight for, for, uh, as well. Wow. I never had one, but I always wanted one. So I guess maybe <laughs> maybe someday. As you've experienced the world and... Uh, this is maybe this is uniquely an American thing. And so the idea is talking about food rights. And to the people who aren't aware of this may sound like a just completely absurd idea. But recently in Tennessee, one of the state legislators has wants to propose or has proposed a bill that would forbid farmers from drinking raw milk from their own cows. Uh, there was a book a few years ago talking about uh, food rights cases in raw milk and raw dairy and, and raw, raw poultry and, and the story of a judge in Wisconsin that decided that you, as the grower of food, do not have a right to the food of your labor. Is this a... Is this something that you have found or would the Europeans and Chinese and Poles just look at this as craziness? Uh, no, I've seen that in a lot of different places. Uh, in Western Europe, uh, there's, there, uh, in recent decades, you've seen this kind of totalitarian impulse, micromanaging people's lives uh, on the part of do-gooders with political power. I think it's reprehensible. Uh, the fact is, we need to remind people that your body is your body. It's nobody else's. And uh, as, as the only time uh, government should be involved at all is if somebody perhaps has uh, deceived you and, and uh, poisoned you or broken their contract with you and delivered something that you didn't expect or contract for, you know, those kinds of things. Force, violence, fraud, deception, actually doing 
uh, harm to another person. Uh, otherwise, it's your body. You have a right uh, that, that you are born with to put into it what you want, so long as um, uh, in the process you don't do harm to another person's equal right uh, to his or her body, his or her life, property, and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, once you start down this slippery slope of saying, well, we don't think people should have raw milk, uh, then we don't think they should have this or that. And before you know it, you've got government prescribing your your diet and your menu uh, for you. Uh, that's the road to tyranny. And I think everybody uh, ought to resist that. It's none of government's business to tell you what you can or cannot put in your body voluntarily. Well, I agree with you on that. And so let me ask you a follow-up, which maybe doesn't get further explanation. How ought libertarians think about food? I think that that's a fascinating question, by the way. I think we should rejoice in the fact that food and the way we deal with it as individuals, as human beings, uh, is a manifestation of the incredible uniqueness and originality that describes uh, that is a descriptor, in fact, of every person. Uh, you know, no two people who have ever lived on this planet have been precisely the same. Every single one of us is extraordinarily unique. And we express that uniqueness in a lot of different ways, by our choices, by our, well, basically choices more than anything else, I guess. But And one of those important areas of choice is the food we decide to prepare and to ingest. So. Uh, I rejoice in the fact that there are uh, such uh, incredible varieties of food and the way it's prepared, reflective of the fact that we as individuals are not robots. There's no one food that uh, you know we all must eat or should eat uh, or do eat. Uh, we do all sorts of things to it, and that's a manifestation of an extraordinary feature of human nature, which is our individuality. Well, I think that was a good, a good springboard off the other one. That was a, so. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, you know, if I could add, yes. Um, sometimes, of course, this means that we we put things in our body that somebody else may uh, disapprove of. Well, that's just too bad. I mean, this is what freedom in a free society is supposed to be about. I was just at the grocery store this morning and I saw something that uh, I had to chuckle about. In fact, I bought a can. It's uh, Reese's peanut butter cup dairy whipped topping in a can like oh like, uh, yeah like whipped cream and i thought to myself oh my gosh i love reese cups but this country's going to the hogs when uh, it, you know if you don't have the energy to actually eat a reese cup now you can just buy a can of this stuff open your pie hole and spray them in uh <laughs> and i i did get it and it's good but uh it's not exactly fine dining oh no, not exactly fine dining. <laughs> so this is maybe an interesting question, given how at least Russia has changed in the last 20, 30 years. But um, supposing that a city is a city is a city, uh, in provincial towns, do you find that there is an increased division of labor, whereas the butcher only does four-legged animals and there's someone down the street doing two-legged winged animals and then you have a fishmonger or is there still in some places the butcher does everything that breathes that's not a human and that the candle maker also is the butcher is there well 
Yeah, this is not something I've given a lot of thought to, so my answer will be more anecdotal and a, sort of a gut feeling. But I think cities, you know, just by definition, uh, tend to take the division of labor to uh, a, 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 it's, they're further along in the division of labor by uh, just very definition. People living uh, close to each other, they have the opportunity to specialize more, and so they do. In rural areas, yeah, there's more, uh, you know, if not self-sufficiency, at least uh, uh, a lot of people do a lot of different things to keep the farm going or, or whatever. So I, I find that uh, the division of labor is still apparent everywhere, but it's more advanced typically in cities. Uh, but I encourage people when you go to a country, don't think you've experienced it if you just go to the cities. Uh, get out in the countryside if you can. I went to uh, Mongolia a few years ago, and in the capital of Ulaanbaatar, you have one level of uh, uh, of living and of, of food quality and what have you, and you have more options for fine dining in Ulaanbaatar. But if you really want to experience the country, go out uh, a few miles uh, or even further to the steppes, and uh, uh, you know, as I did, and actually have a dinner in a yurt or, or a gare, as they sometimes call them, these circular tents that uh, many Mongolians live in. And there you'll experience uh, unbelievable uh, food that you could never have imagined. I've eaten some things that uh, I look back and I think, oh, golly, at the time uh, I was more than happy to do it. I'm glad I did, but I'm not sure I'd recommend it all. Well, we're actually going to get to those kinds of topics in just a minute. <laughs> Like uh, uh, the national drink in uh, Mongolia is called Irag, A-I-R-A-G. It really does require a, a, a taste that you have to develop. It's fermented horse milk. And uh, I drank a great big mug of it because it was presented to me as a kind of token of friendship and I didn't want to offend. Uh, I, I, I didn't particularly care for it, but I sure appreciated it. Uh, the kindness that came with it and the opportunity to give it a try. But I like everything, but IRAG is not high on my list. Uh, I read on your blog your post about wine. So I, I'm i going to deduce that you are still not the wine aficionado you want to be. <laughs> so tell, tell me a little bit about the impetus for that post and, and what's changed since you wrote it. Yeah, this was a month or two ago. Uh, I like red wine. I like white wine, too. I actually started uh, many decades ago drinking wine uh, and drinking mostly white and then gravitated to red, mainly because uh, the more I read, the more I uh, discovered that red, uh, you know, is probably better for you. Uh, and you get the whole grape, not just uh, the innards when you drink red wine. But I've never tasted all the things that wine aficionados say uh, you should taste in a glass of wine. And I, hey, maybe it's just me, you know, I, maybe I still have a peasant palate, I don't know. But I read on a flight to Brazil last fall, the menu uh, that was served in the business class section, and it uh, the descriptions of the wines just broke me up. Uh, one of them said, uh, this particular wine contained notes of coffee, red licorice, honeysuckle, earthly, earthy truffles, and leather. <laughs> and I, I thought, leather? I mean, who wants to eat or, or drink liquefied leather? Uh, so I, you know, I 
tried to taste those things, but uh, I just couldn't. It just tastes like wine to me. It's 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 grapes with a zing to them. Uh, and then another, another description said uh, this wine was succulent and supple with a tense body. Uh, you know, tense, as if it had some kind of nervous hang-up. A tense body of bright, wild strawberry, dried lavender, Asian spice, and crushed rock, <laughs> and finishes in a gorgeous dabble of white pepper. And I drank that whole glass, and I never tasted a strawberry or lavender or any Asian spice, uh, let alone crushed rock. So I wrote this column because I was, uh, I just thought, hey, here's an opportunity for a little levity. I think wine descriptions go off the deep end. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm not anti-wine. I drink a lot of it. Now, I think you're right about wine descriptions having the tendency to just be ridiculous, and it's almost as if the, the technical writers have a quota to fill on how idiotic they can be and how many, <laughs> how many descriptors they can come up with. <laughs> I, I picked up a copy of Wine Enthusiast magazine uh, after that flight to just to you know, to read what it had to say about such things. It was page after page of this stuff, and I made a note of some of the more extraordinary things that people uh, wrote that they tasted in wines, things like wood smoke, blackened toast, butter cookies, uh, clarified butter as opposed to just regular butter, <laughs> and roasted beef in blackberry sauce, a cigar box, and one even said it tasted like a barnyard. As if that's a selling point. And <laughs> in a complimentary way. Well, I worked at a wine tasting room a few years ago, and as probably with all of all things that have the opportunity for uh, a level of expense and, 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 and artist's appeal, wine certainly is that, although it can be for the common person or you can spend $10,000 on a bottle of wine, there is a snootiness that comes and sometimes very feigned and it was so it was a, it was a challenge to present these wines to taste to the people who were convinced they knew more about the wines than the maker knew about the wines and as as the guy behind the counter you just smile and nod your head but think to yourself well you know it's you're 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 bringing more to this party than there really is there, and and I think your point about the winemaker descriptions is the same. Yeah, to the folks who the good folks who write such descriptors, uh, I would just encourage them to lighten up a little bit, get real, and maybe break out a bottle of uh, birch beer, uh, you know, which is a soft drink that uh, not many people know of, but I love it, or uh, Calvin Coolidge's favorite soft drink, which was Moxie. And you can still get it, but I think only in uh, Plymouth Notch, Vermont, where he was from. It tastes like cough syrup, but it, it's uh, I like it. I, I'm not familiar with that soft drink. Yeah, Moxie, M-O-X-I-E. Maybe you can get it online, I don't know. But they still sell it in the uh, Coolidge Family General Store right there in the, a tiny little hamlet of, of uh, Plymouth Notch, Vermont. And it was the president's favorite drink. Wow. Well, when we were kids, and I'm, I'm I'm from Detroit, and so Verner's ginger ale is, oh yeah, I, I think still there. Maybe it's gone, but no, I think it's still there. I lived in Michigan thirty years, and I know it, it was uh, always very popular. Oh well, then that way, every time I got the slightest sniffles, out came the Verner's, and my mom gave me a here's a can of Verner's and drink the Verner's ginger ale. 
<laughs> and that killed off uh, the sniffles? Uh, I, th- I think it was probably more placebo effect than actual medicine. But I mean, so you you build this, um, you build this member. So this is one of the things that's really powerful in food, and we're not going to get to it today too much. But the whole Proustian idea of of the almost gets into semiotics, the image of the thing versus the actual thing. And if you remember at the end of uh, Ratatouille, the food critic eats the dish of Ratatouille and the first bite, he's instantly transported to being four or five years old at his mom's kitchen. And food has this incredible power of time travel where we can be in a whole other place and a whole other time just by the smell and the flavor of the thing. And one of the ways that's developed is your mom gives you Verna's ginger ale when you're sick. Yeah. And you feel better. And suddenly you have this thing. Yeah. So for Proust, it was the Madeline cookie. Um, but it worked. Everybody has their own whatever that moment is. And you can't, you can't force it as a chef. Uh, cooking for many years, I had a couple of people who volunteered to tell the wait staff, and the and the wait staff remembered to tell me that this was as good as grandma's. Yeah. At some other point, and when you get a compliment like that, you think grandma. I say, wait a minute, you miss on you missing the boat. What this person is saying is you've just made his life. Yeah. Because you've just made a dish that reminds him or her of childhood at grandma's house and how you, you can't beat that. That's the biggest compliment you can get. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned the, the movie Ratatouille. It's uh, between Ratatouille and ants. Uh, I, those are my two favorite animated films of all time. And uh, yeah, I would guess that uh, you could probably maybe already have discussed uh, Ratatouille on your program many times. <laughs> Well, funny enough, uh, I spoke to uh, the actual Anarchy Boys about, actually the boy, because the other guy was out sick, but we we did a version of Ratatouille. Oh, did you really? I'll put a link to that. Yeah, I'll put a link to that um, show on today's show notes page, which will be culinarylibertarian.com slash 21. Hey, fantastic. And that'd be a, my appearance on Actual Anarchy uh, podcast. That's great. Yeah, I, that's a fantastic movie. I agree. So let's move a little bit to something a little bit more interesting. Well, not less interesting, uh, a little bit lighter. So in your travels around the world, how is American food perceived as you understand it? Oh, I think there's probably a very broad uh, perspective there, depending on where you are. I think generally speaking, the you know, the French would probably uh, turn their noses up for the most part at uh, so-called American. Undoubtedly. Yeah, American cuisine. Uh, and, you know, for a long time, people maybe to a great extent still uh, turn their nose up at uh, British cuisine. We think of it as just, uh, you know, uh, uh, fish and chips. But actually, British cuisine can be quite good. I, I think every country has, if you know where to go and know what to ask for, um, uh, has great food. Uh, some of these stereotypes, I think, are not really warranted. But uh, by and large, American food probably uh, isn't thought of, generally speaking, as, as well as we think of 
French or Italian. They've just been at it a lot longer. And, uh, you know, there's something exotic about uh, foods from those countries. So we're probably not thought of as a haven for fine cuisine, but we really are. Well, I think you're probably right on several points. And one of the first challenges to the question, which is another show, is what exactly is American food? And so that with, depending how you count things, either 50 regions or at least a good dozen, it's it's a hard thing to it's a hard thing to nail down because you're not going to get chow chow in Hawaii and you're not going to get poi in Alabama. So <laughs> we have to figure out what it is we mean by that. But that's again, that's another show. That's right. We are uh, uh, we are a polyglot melting pot kind of country, and uh, so we've got all kinds of food. And being now a southerner by transplant uh, here in Georgia. Uh, I've always loved barbecue, but now I love it more than ever. Now that I've discovered some of the best barbecue in the world uh, here in the Atlanta area, that that might be, uh, if not uniquely American, at least uh, there is uh, uh, a a well-known and renowned American barbecue uh, genre for sure. Yes. And notwithstanding Texas, I think you never had a barbecue until you got to Georgia. (laughs) Yeah, uh, may well be. but boy, there are great places here. I, right here in my little town of Noonan, we've got uh, uh, at least two fantastic uh, barbecue restaurants. And uh, my favorite, maybe of uh, of them all, is Fox Brothers up in Atlanta. Uh, it's just really, I always tell people when you come to Atlanta, you, you've got to stop at Fox Brothers for the barbecue. Oh, well, they'll appreciate that. So you've answered my next question, which I didn't ask, which was, what is your favorite American food and who makes it? So we've gotten that part down. Um, do you have a favorite ethnic food? Yeah, I think uh, when I've been asked that, I, I usually say Italian. Uh, I, uh, uh, you know, I love cheese. I eat probably four times the average uh, per capita <laughs> amount of cheese. Uh, and uh, Italians uh, are good with cheese. And I love tomato sauce. Uh, so I think Italian is way up there. But there's almost nothing in the way of an ethnic food that I don't like, I, that, which is a great uh, attribute to have, I think, if you travel the world as I have, because I can go anywhere, eat just about anything and find reason to like it. Well, all right. So then that brings up the next question. Are you a picky eater at all? And are you a picky eater when you travel? No, I'm the least picky eater in the world. And every time uh, anybody invites me to dinner and they say, is there anything you you, you can't eat or don't want to eat or are, are allergic to? I say, absolutely no. I'll, whatever you make, I will enjoy. Uh, as long as it's not too hot. You know, I don't want anything that's off the chart of the, on the Scoville scale for fair enough, fair enough. But, uh, otherwise I eat everything and almost always like everything. Well, that you're a good guest to have. I got, yeah. I'm not, maybe that means my palate is not very discriminating, but, uh, it just, food just takes great, tastes great to me. I've never been picky. Well, that's okay. So what you, what you possibly lack in palate affinity is, Come is, is in, in increases your hospitality as a guest, so it's to your favor, I suppose. <laughs> well, thank you. It certainly serves me well in other countries. I've eaten uh, some strange things, uh, from snake and uh, bird's nest soup in China uh, to the irag I mentioned in in uh, Mongolia. I mean, you name it, and uh, 
yeah, that I didn't care for, but most things I really like. Okay, so you've already told us the White Rabbit in Moscow is one of your favorites, maybe the best. What are, you can exclude that if you want to, what are your top three favorite restaurants or dishes that you've experienced? Mm, yeah, you know, top three restaurants, that'd be tough uh, because I can think of fantastic meals, but I don't necessarily remember the name of the restaurant. I had a, uh, uh, way back in 1985, the first time I went to China, I had uh, Peking duck for the first time. And I still remember that uh, that meal like it was yesterday. It was just absolutely fantastic. The plum sauce, the scallions, the uh, uh, the duck, uh, you know, and the little pancakes. You roll it all in. Yes. Oh my gosh, that was just fantastic. I've never uh, had Peking duck in my life since. That was as good as that first time. But I couldn't tell you what the name of the restaurant was. You know, I got to tell you that. And Peking duck is fantastic. I've never had the best one, but those little scallion pancakes, oh my gosh, those things are good. Absolutely, yep. I remember having uh, a salmon in Monaghan, Ireland. I was driving from, I'd just taken the ferry from Scotland over to Belfast and then uh, uh, was driving from Belfast down into the uh, Republic of Ireland and ultimately to the southern part and then uh, took the ferry back over to England. And came through a little town called Monaghan, uh, where I had the most savory, buttery, delicious salmon I've ever had. And every time I order salmon today, I think of, of that. And that's probably 25 years ago or more. Nice. So excluding IRAG, what's the worst thing you've ever eaten? <laughs> uh, the first time I ever had kimchi. Really? Was in, yeah, it was in South Korea. And, you know, I'm, I'm not big into super spicy stuff, but boy, that was, even for kimchi, I think that was uh, just really uh, off the chart, uh, hot and spicy. I didn't expect it and uh, left a bad taste for quite a while. Uh, so I, I haven't touched kimchi since. <laughs> there was, um, uh, in Tallahassee, there was a, it was actually a restaurant supply store, but they also had a, a small uh, kitchen where they sold the things that they made. Uh, and one fellow, uh, they made kimchi and it wasn't, I'm, I'm like you. I don't, I don't mind the flavor of spice, but just like nuclear hot. I just don't appreciate that. I, I don't care for that. It does not please me. So they made a kimchi that was not spicy hot, but oh my gosh, I've never found a kimchi that twinned that one is just, I don't even know what he did. It was so simple, but my goodness, was it good. <laughs> Well, have you ever been to Poland? Uh, I have not. The closest I got was, cream, was Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Well, uh, again, when you go there, ask for Bigos. That's a great uh, great district. Oh, I will. Oh, I should tell you too, Dan, I, uh, this was a big shock and a surprise to me. Last May, for the first time, I went to the Galapagos Islands, which belong to Ecuador. I had speeches in uh, Quito and uh, Guayaquil, and in between, I spent four days on uh, the islands. And uh, of course you go for things like the wildlife and the uh, vegetation. Uh, ex most people expect there to be almost nothing in the way of settlement, uh, but there really is uh, a really cool little town called Puerto Ayora, about 25,000 people. And I have to say two of the best uh, uh, dinners I've ever had in my life. I had right there in, in restaurants on ordinary people were eating at right on the 
uh, main drag. One of them was pizza, and it was the best pizza I've ever had. Imagine that in the Galapagos. <laughs> and at the other... Don't tell the Sicilians. Yeah, at the other... Yeah. <laughs> I had the swordfish at the other uh, restaurant, and unlike uh, the swordfish I've had elsewhere, it was less like a steak, a little more fluffy. Uh, the texture was a little different, and it was just outstanding. And I just didn't expect such delectable foods uh, in the Galapagos Islands. Well, that swordfish observation is interesting. It makes me wonder if it wasn't part of the belly. Oh, uh, you know, it might have been. I don't know. Because that it's got the belly's got more fat in it, whereas the the muscle, of course, is just pure muscle. Yeah. Uh, that would explain why I liked it so much, because uh, I know that my taste buds love uh, the, what is it, the fifth taste, I think, called umami. Well, that was my next question. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Well, that's all right. So, well, obviously, in case someone doesn't know, the, the four main ones are bitter, salty, sour, sweet. And then sort of we've discovered, I think maybe it was the Japanese who sort of identified that last fifth thing of umami, which... Is so <laughs> here's your non economist question of the day Can you identify or define umami? Uh, well, I, to my understanding, it is the savoriness that you find in things like uh, fatty foods, uh, dairy products. I think it explains why I like cheese so much because cheese has uh, typically, anyway, most cheeses. A very uh, savory, uh, greasy <laughs> flavor to it. It's the reason that uh, when I go to a barbecue place, I find the uh, fattiest uh, brisket I can find because uh, it just imparts such a wonderful flavor. Uh, it, it's also the reason I take Lipitor, I think, for cholesterol. <laughs> but hey, uh, you know, like I said, as a libertarian, it's it's my body. I want to put in it whatever I want to. Uh, enjoy life, even if it shortens it by a few months. Well, I I agree. I think that that's probably a good working definition, and I'm not sure that I'm in a position to add to that. Uh, but I am. I would suggest that you see somebody who knows more than your doctor about your health, because you might be getting misinformation. Okay. <laughs> well, just because I've, I've done a few episodes, I talked with a couple of people, and so and anyway, we'll talk about that later. But um Something not food-related, but just interesting. What's your favorite sound? My favorite sound? Yeah. Oh, wow. Nobody's ever asked me that. Uh, I would have to say, uh, uh, okay, I'm thinking of several. Now, how do I narrow it down? I guess I would say maybe uh, the sound of uh, uh, Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Ah, that's a good sound. Because, oh, my gosh, yeah, I... Every time I listen to it, it brings tears to my eyes. I know, of course, it's importance to people who believe in liberty. And uh, also, I, I, I just am amazed that a mortal being could have composed such a beautiful piece. So that certainly is way up there, if not my number one sound. That's a good sound. What sound and noise do you hate? Uh, fingernails on a chalkboard. Uh, oh, <laughs> Kamala Harris announcing her presidential campaign. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, Nancy Pelosi at the uh, at a podium. <laughs> Rimshot time. Badoomch. <laughs> uh, yeah, those would be uh, among my 
least. The uh, the thing that's on the chalkboard, I, I'm pretty sure it was one of the Peter Sellers Pink Panther movies where he put on a uh, a bear claw and then on the chalkboard is torture. And Oh. Um, I, I don't remember. I think that was the movie. I honestly don't remember which one, but I, I it's never really bothered me the way it bothers some, but I, I can appreciate that it is a displeasant. Oh, yes. I can't. At the moment, think of anything worse than that. Or an, un, an unsettling sound. <laughs> well, I would I would expand I would expand your um, signaling out politicians to pretty much any time they open their mouth. But that's just the cynic in me. Well, I have some of the same sympathies. I'm sure that most of the time, <laughs> I'm sure you do. Spouting nonsense as they're uh, talking about what they're going to do for you. Uh, and all I can think about is what they have to do to me in order to do anything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Stop helping, please. Please, please. Yeah. Yeah. We have the same problem in Oregon. Look what we look how we're helping you. No, you can stop. Is that where you live? I didn't realize that that's where you uh, where you are. Yep. I'm now. I'm in now. I'm in Oregon. Who knows where I'll be next year? Okay, that's the home of a what is it? The Cascade Policy Institute, as I recall. Uh. Yes. I think that it is. Yep, a free market think tank. Uh, I think founded by an old friend of mine, Steve Buckstein, still there. It's a great outfit. Uh, it's a tough state to work in, though. Uh, and it's they're getting worse. They want rent control and and a dozen new taxes. And oh my gosh, is it uh, one of only two states? The other being New Jersey, that still uh, makes it illegal in most places for you to pump your own gas. Yes, although. <laughs> So there was last year during the election in some rural areas. Now you can pump your own gas and just the expected amount of crazies came out of the woodwork saying this old lady is going to die because she has to pump her own gas. And, you know, I, I lived in Michigan and Florida where you pump your own gas. And I've never once in many years on this planet seen anybody fall over dead from pumping gas. It just the the almost hypochondriatic responses to change is it's just my gosh people just think for a second please absolutely well that's the kind of unbelievably stupid and intrusive law that uh, uh, that I, I'd love to see people just uh, here's something for you to organize Dan why don't you organize a statewide uh, one day pump your own gas day and uh, just get everybody in Oregon who to just pump their own gas anyway in defiance of the law, and maybe the politicians will will get the message. Interesting idea. I'm I'm my I I think it would work. My concern would be with all of the other noise going on with Kate and her minions. Would they hear it? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I know it wouldn't be easy, but boy, I'd love to see it. Well, well, <laughs> I'm I'm on some uh, Oregon Facebook pages and. Um, I'm I'm reassured that my legislators are doing their job because they post pictures of the letters they've written, and when they get really mad, then they write another letter. Well, all right, thank goodness you're there writing letters. Whew. <laughs> Sorry, was that cynical? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I look forward to a pump your own gas day in Oregon that organized by you, and if they throw you in jail, I'll bake you a cake and bring it in with them with a hacksaw in it. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's see what I can do. Uh, I saw recently that uh, one of your books was translated into Portuguese. 
Yes. That is very, very cool. Hey, thank you. That was Excuse Me Professor, which uh, has 50 uh, myths that, that progressives typically uh, pronounce about capitalism and free markets, and, and it provides a response to each of them. But they changed the title in uh, Portuguese, too. <laughs> this is in Brazil. They changed it to Excuse Me Socialist, and I got a chuckle out of that. Really? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm sure the publisher down there thought that might have more impact uh, given the current climate in uh, in Brazil. So I, I applaud it. <laughs> well, all right. Certainly take their word for it. Um, I, am I correct that you also have a book recently out or due out soon? Uh, well, the last book came out of, of two, two and a half years ago called Real Heroes, uh, subtitled uh, Inspiring True Stories of Courage, Character, and Conviction. It has about 40 chapters in it of... Uh, each one on a, a great person who left the world a better or freer place, and in some cases, both. Um, I have ideas in the works, uh, nothing on the drawing boards firmly yet, but uh, I expect in coming months and years, I'll be cranking out a lot of articles and several more books. That's what I'd like to do more than anything else as I slide into a kind of uh, semi-retirement. Well, that's a good plan. Uh, how can people find your articles, and do you have a website for us? Yes, uh, two websites. Uh, the website of the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, I certainly uh, have a lot of stuff there that uh, I think I first started writing for Fee in 1977, and everything we've ever published since the 1950s is on that site. That's fee, F-E-E dot org. And then I have my own personal website, uh, which contains mostly stuff I've written for fee, but a lot of other things too. And that is simply Lawrence W. Reed, R-E-E-D, dot com, Lawrence W. Reed, dot com. Okay, excellent. And I will put both of those links also on the today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 21. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you before we go is what languages do you speak fluently? Some would say none. <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> I think I'm reasonably good at English, but uh, my second language is so far down the list it's hardly worth mentioning. But when I go to a Spanish-speaking country, uh, my Spanish sort of comes back a bit. But uh, I, uh, I usually use an interpreter or local friends who help me out uh, wherever I go. Okay. It just was something I was just thinking about. It's like, well, if all these places you go, surely, perhaps you've pick, picked up some pigeon bits here and there. Yeah, yeah, a little conversational stuff, even Russian, but uh, not really uh, very extensive at all. I pick up some vocabulary, the, the alphabet. You know, if you go to Russia, if you just know the alphabet, you'll be amazed at how many words uh, you can decipher. Uh, so uh, it helps to know that. Well, that's probably good advice for anyone anywhere. Yeah. When I went to Japan, I took a course in Japanese before going. And even though I've forgotten most of it, uh, it proved to be very valuable. And I can still count from one to 10 uh, in Japanese. Ichi, ni, san, shu, do, roku, shichi, hachi, kuju. There you go. Excellent. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, Larry, this has been a pleasure. And I, I don't think I would have gotten any of this information on fee. So I'm glad we did this. Okay. Thank you, Dan. It's been fun, and I applaud you for your efforts. Uh, when I first learned of your website, I thought it was very intriguing, still do, and 
I'll help promote it. When you post this, uh, let me know, and I'll put it on my Facebook page. All right, folks, that's going to do it. That cutoff at the end there was me accidentally stopping the recording. So Larry and I didn't have a chance to say goodbye, but I assure you he did. He did, in fact, say goodbye. I'll have links to Larry's websites mentioned on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 21 as well as links to the two books Larry mentioned, the English versions, of course. For those interested, I have the podcast audio posted on YouTube. It's not video, but it is sometimes just easier to let the tube play while you're doing something else. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash podcast YT to check it out com slash podcast YT. See you next week. That cutoff at the end there was me accidentally stopping the recording, so... Larry and I didn't have a chance to say goodbye, but I assure you, he did. He did, in fact, say goodbye. <clears throat> Hello, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. A couple things. First, follow me on Head on over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and follow me on my social media icons, and join me in the Eating Liberty Facebook group. Also, I would much appreciate your support through Patreon if you like the show. Click on the Patreon icon, also on the podcasts page, to see how you can support the show. Find, like, and rate the show on your favorite podcatcher. The more reviews and ratings the show gets, the more people find it and listen to the show. The more people who are listening are the more people who get cooking. Lastly, please do share the show on social media, uh, Facebook or Twitter or Minds.com. You might have seen the recent C-SPAN Presidential Historians Survey for 2017 poll ranking the presidents in a handful of categories including administrative skill and setting an agenda. Side note, presidents ought not have an agenda. Bite back against the bad information you were told in public education with my affiliate link to Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom at culinarylibertarian.com slash bite back. There you can find a course by historian Brian McClanahan called The Ten Best and Ten Worst Presidents. Get that course in time to know why the candidates are going to be so wrong when they invoke, when they invoke FDR or Wilson. Bite back against the education they didn't give you at culinarylibertarian.com slash bite back. (coughs) 
the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 25. 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 Hey, Dan, let's take a minute out for a word from one of our affiliates. Folks, Kidster believes that getting kids in the... Kidster believes that getting kids in the mix gives them... Kidster believes that getting kids in the kitchen gives them more opportunities to try new things and build new life skills, making them happier... Kidster is a monthly subscription service with two different products. They have the Happy Cooking Kits and the Growing Up Guides. Kidster believes that getting kids in the mix gives them more opportunities to try new things and to build new life skills, making them happier and more confident and more confident today and as they grow. Kidster offers a variety of subscription plans. Kidster offers a variety of subscription plans for any budget and special holiday packages as well. There's even a happy cooking binder for all your kids' recipes. Each monthly cooking kit includes a recipe card and focuses on a specific ingredient for dishes which will teach particular skills. The kit comes with the tools necessary to make the dish, a shopping list, colorful, colorful cards presenting information about the ingredients, and more. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com kidster. That's culinarylibertarian.com k-i-d-s-t-i-r to learn more about the subscription plans and how you can get your kids in the kitchen. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Normally, this would be the spot where I talk about another affiliate. Not today. Instead, I'm going to talk about instead, I'm going to talk about many of them all located on my resources page. Instead, I'm going to talk about many of them, all located on my resources page, culinarylibertarian.com resources. There you'll find spices and ingredients and tools and more for young cooks and bakers, all from various affiliates. One of the truly great things about cooking and baking is the learning never ends. There are just so many flavors and cooking styles and new ways to think of food that you can travel the world and never leave your house. But you should travel the world, too. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash resources to keep your young cooks and bakers stocked up. I'll see you next week.